Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Well, good morning. My name is Ronnie. I'm a member here at GCC, and it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's Word this morning. And with that, we're going to be in Genesis 28. You can start finding your way there. There's actually Bibles set around the room if you don't have one yourself. And if you don't own one at all, that's actually a gift from Gospel Community Church to you, for you to have. As I was said earlier, today we start our series of Advent. This idea of a hopeful expectation, the coming of the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus. And even now, we look forward to the fulfillment of that in Jesus' second coming. So as we build up throughout the month of December, we're looking back and reflecting on the hopeful expectation that the people of God had that God would come and be with us in the incarnation, uh, culminating in Christmas, December 25th, where we celebrate the birth of Christ. And I know that's probably not his actual birthday, so I don't lose any credibility or anything like that, but it's the day every year where we come together and we celebrate it. Rick also wanted me to talk about this, uh, the Advent, something we're going to start doing in the kids' area, this is more for the parents, is we're going to try to start getting the, the lessons back in the kids' areas to sync up with what we're going through as a church so that we could be more connected uh, generationally as a church, like uh, as we would want to be, so that we can come together and even explore what we're learning here in the service and then what the kids are learning back in the kids area. So you can start, if you're a parent, by grabbing one of the Advent packets that are back there right now and you can examine and explore what your kids are learning and share what you're learning with them and see and kind of bridge the gap between the two. So as I said today, we're celebrating the coming of God with us. As Mark said earlier, Emmanuel, this coming. And today we also lit the candle of faith and in this passage, Genesis 28, 10 through 17, we're going to look at faith in the context of God being with us through Jacob's story. And before I read it and we jump into the text, let me provide a little context because we are kind of jumping in right into the middle of a story. Jacob has just tricked his brother for a second time. He, to- he stole his brother's birthright by tricking him, and then he tricked his blind father, terrible thing to do, into taking away his brother's blessing. And his brother is now extremely angry and going to kill him as soon as their father dies. So now he's getting out of Dodge, basically. He's been sent away by his, his mother because she knows what his brother is going to do to him once his, their father dies. He also is going there to find a wife. His father sends him his way as well. But mostly he's, he's trying to get away from his brother that's trying to kill him. So that's where we find ourselves in chapter 28, verse 10. I'll read it and then we'll dive in. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. 
and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this place that we get to come and worship you and be reminded of the truths that you've given us in Scripture, the promises of your coming, your desire to dwell with us. I pray that we would find hope in this passage as we explore it in what can be a very difficult season of life for some of us. I pray that you would help uh, open our eyes to the mission that you have and how you've called us to be a part of that mission. We thank you, God, for this time, this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First off, before we begin, just because Jacob is not as familiar as a character as most of the characters in the Bible, let me explain who he is real quick and, and explain his place in the overall redemptive narrative. Because verse 10 starts off with Jacob. So who is Jacob? This is the grandson of Abraham, a little bit more familiar character. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name is later changed by God to Israel, and then he has 12 sons. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. The great, 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 super great, keep going for a very long time, grandfather actually of Jesus Christ. We're familiar with Jesus, comes from the line of Judah, that's one of the sons. We're reading from the book of 1 Corinthians right now. Paul says he's from the tribe of Benjamin, that's another one of the, the kids. There's a book in the Bible named Leviticus, named after one of the children, Levi. That's where his story fits into the redemptive narrative overall, about 2,000 years before Jesus ever came to earth. And one of the most fascinating things about Jacob is the way in which he sums up his life when he comes before Pharaoh at the end of his days. That's in chapter 47. We're in chapter 28, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip forward just for a second so you kind of understand uh, Jacob's life as a whole and the promises given to God in the context of this passage. When he stands before Pharaoh, he sums up his life by saying, few and evil have been the days of my life. It's interesting that he would say few because at that point he had lived to be 130 years old. And he actually goes on to be 147. Relatively speaking to the rest of humanity, he actually lived a pretty long life. But in the scope of human history and eternity, his life was nothing more than a blink of an eye, if that. And statistically speaking, as I look out and see all of you, the truth is that in about 50 years, the vast majority of us won't even be here anymore. That's right, I'm asking you to remember that you will die, and relatively soon. Merry Christmas. Jacob's not the only one, though, to sum up his life in this way. Job did the same thing, and even the psalmist cries out to God, asking him that he would be reminded of his mortality. Even more odd, throughout the 15th and 17th century of human history, the Christian church had popularized a Latin phrase. Some of you may be familiar with it, memento mori. This means, remember, you will die. Kind of odd 
that they had to remember that they would die considering that during that time in human history, death was all around them. How much more do we in the 21st century, surrounded by so much entertainment and so far removed from the process of dying, need to be reminded of our mortality, that there is an enemy at the end of our days named death. So he describes his life as few, few of days, also evil. Not only was Jacob evil, he did evil things, but there was also evil brought upon him. He cheated his brother out of his birthright, as I mentioned before. He tricked his blind father. That's a terrible thing to do. He took advantage of his father's blindness to trick his brother out of his second blessing and was in turn cheated by his uncle and lost 14 years of his very short life. Had God not intervened, his uncle and brother surely would have at least tried to kill him maybe even succeeded. He lost his mother, his favorite wife, and for a long time he thought he had lost his favorite son, Joseph. This is the experience of Jacob's life, the experience of all of our lives. These are the two great enemies that tower over all of humanity. Any worldly philosophy or uh, sorry, religion has to deal with these two problems. They have to at least try to address them. Get rid of death and you would face an eternity of evil and suffering. Destroy evil and after, your, after 80 years of bliss, the light of your life would be snuffed out and lost in the years following your death. Of all the many people that are remembered in the annals of history, there are countless that are forgotten. What hope do we have that these two things would be destroyed? In examining this passage, we start to see how God is going to bless all of humanity in crushing these two opponents on our behalf. As I said, these are the two great enemies of humanity. The thing when going up against a great enemy, you better have a great ally. Winston Churchill recognized this in World War II. He said with all the difficulties of having to work with many different nations, the only thing that would have been worse would have been fighting the Axis without the power of the allies by his side. And Britain very well would have been doomed had they not had that ally fighting alongside them. If God is not with you, both of these things will crush you in this life and the one to come. Jesus Christ is the only one of whom death bowed before him and said, your will be done. Absolutely, you take up your life if you'd like to again. So let's keep reading. We'll see how God is going to go about doing this. In verse 10 it says he left to Beersheba. And went toward Haran. It's kind of downplaying the whole thing. He's actually running for his life right now, remember. And clearly Jacob was in a hurry. As you move on to verse 11, it says when he came to a certain place and the sun had set, that he took one of the stones and he used that, put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Jacob doesn't even have any spare clothes that he could roll up and throw under his head at this point. What's interesting is I was reading this passage, preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of my first night in Afghanistan. They actually didn't have a place for us yet, and I actually slept outside under the stars on the rocks. Now, mind you, I had a pillow under my head. But as tired as, tired as I was, if you've ever traveled like that, such a long distance, you're talking over 3,000 miles, especially with the military, you become so tired that you can pretty much sleep anywhere and in any position at that point. And as tired as I was, it was a little difficult. Not so much because it was uncomfortable, which it was, but you also feel vulnerable. Here I was outside, exposed to the elements as Jacob was, 
especially when you hear all the stories and see all the pictures of camel spiders. If you don't know what that is, go home and look that up. Merry Christmas again. That thing is terrifying, especially when you look at what it can do. But I was also in enemy territory. The base I was on was frequently, frequently rocketed. And what that means is, it, in military jargon, it's attacked. That base was constantly attacked. And this is Jacob. He's outside. He's exposed to the elements. He's no longer with his family. He's, he's moved on into potentially enemy territory. We don't know who's out there, whose land that is. He's exposed to the elements, exposed to the wildlife, fearful on the run for his life from his own family member, lacking even the most basic comforts like a pillow. He could very well be alone. It's difficult to tell. It is a long journey from the pronouns used in chapter 28, verses 31 through 32. John Calvin seems to suggest he's alone, so I feel safe in saying it, it, it may have been that he was alone on this very, very long journey. 600 miles isn't that much to us, but back when you had to do it on foot, this is, this is a huge undertaking. He's exhausted from traveling and completely surrounded by darkness. So where is God now in Jacob's fear and his vulnerability his loneliness, his exhaustion, in all of this darkness, where is God? And no doubt, most of us have probably asked this exact same question of God at one point in our life, and if we haven't yet, just wait. And to the feeling of desperate exhaustion, all the parents in the room said, Amen. Especially so around the holidays. You know the crazy thing to the answer of all those questions? We know where I'm going. I've already said we're talking about faith. We're talking about God with us. We just read it in the Bible. I read the passage. We know the answer. God's working behind the scenes in mysterious ways unseen to our eyes, and that is glorious. Yes and amen. But think about this for a second. Why is Jacob in this circumstance? Is he just a poor guy that's been misunderstood? No. He's a liar and a cheater. He's in this circumstance by his own doing. I mentioned this is of great importance because while some of us have entered into difficult circumstances because of things beyond our control, others of us are in misery, and it's by our own doing. Just like Jacob, our sin has brought us to a place of separation from others and of God. And in our exhaustion and need, we find no hope because it was ultimately us who got us into this place. Like Jacob, we are broken. Like Jacob, have you ever been so drained, so surrounded by reminders of your sin, a head full of memories of your transgressions that you can't even bring yourself to cry out to God and instead grab the nearest stone and lay down your head on it just for a moment of rest? Too tired and too broken to come to God. This is Jacob in all his brokenness. But how does God respond? Look at verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending. God's response to Jacob in all this is rest. Rest. I've got this. Even while you sleep, I am about the, the work of accomplishing my will. God had promised all these amazing things to Abraham and Isaac, and now here's Abraham's miserable grandson messing everything up, right? No, God's still going to remain faithful to his promise. Not because Jacob's so great, not because his 
forefathers did such a good job at fulfilling these promises that God had given them. I mean, think about it. This is over 150 years since God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And at this point in redemptive history, I have more descendants than Abraham, and I'm only 30 years old. So why is God still even choosing to interact with this family? Abraham and Isaac were just as messed up. Go back and read their stories. Why would he remain faithful to this family? Why would he remain faithful to you? It's right there in verse 13 as we continue reading. Behold, the Lord stood above it all and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham. I am the Lord. It's because of who he is. In Exodus 34, 6-7, we have God coming to Moses and describing who he is to Moses. This is God describing himself to Moses. This is, this is who I am. Now, we use all different kinds of terminology to describe who God is. We talk about his, his all, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite, eternal, sovereign, Lord. And these are all true characteristics of God based on the scriptures. They're, they're great but listen to how God describes himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is God saying, this is who I am. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Without compromising his holiness and his justice, God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, merciful and gracious. God's not faithful to his covenant promises because of who you are and what good or bad you have done, but he's faithful to his promises because he is faithful. And how much better the promises that God gives in other passages like Malachi 3.6 when he says, I, the Lord, do not change. His faithfulness is a characteristic fixed in eternity. Nothing that you could ever do to change it. God comes to a weary Jacob, reminds him of who he is, reaffirms his promises in the very same way that I may be doing for you right now through the word of God and giving you strength to finish the race. Maybe like Jacob, you've been so beaten down lately by your circumstances that like Jacob, you're so tired that the nearest rock would suffice for a place for you to just rest your head. Too tired to pray, too tired to commune with God, and yet you're here now listening to the word of God. And God wants in the same way that he does to Jacob in verses 13 and 14 and reaffirming his promises come to you now in this moment and say that the thing he promises in verse 14 of the offspring that will come and bless the nations has come and has indeed blessed you. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This passage should be familiar to us, or, or this verse, for a couple of reasons. One, as a church, we just went through Genesis not that long ago. Maybe it was, I think it was a little over a year ago. Two, this is not the first time that this promise shows up in the Bible. This is almost word for word what God had promised to Abraham. And for a more clear understanding of what exactly is going on right here, we can go to the Apostle Paul and see what he says in Galatians 3.16. The same Apostle Paul that we have a church have been going through in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's interpretation of what's going on here in Galatians 3.16. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham 
and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to offspring. This is a summation of Paul's understanding at the end of verse 16 in Galatians 3, who is Christ? This is the offspring he's talking about. Now, yes, this is the promise of Abraham that Paul is talking about, but as I said, this is word for this is almost word for word what God promised Abraham, now giving it again to Jacob. The offspring of Jacob. The great, 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 I'm just kidding. It's like over 40 generations later. Jesus, the descendant of Jacob, comes as Emmanuel, God with us, to live amongst his people and throughout his and through his perfect life, death resurrection and ascension to the Father. Now all of the earth is blessed in receiving this gospel, the good news and the salvation. Jacob only gets to look forward, or he only got to look forward to this promise, but everyone here today is living on the other side of history of it already having happened. God was and is to ever be with us. In the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity became truly man. Not taking away anything from his deity, but adding humanity to it. As the long-expected descendant of this broken man we're reading about now, Jacob, all so that we who believe, who would have faith in Christ, could be called the blessed man that Paul talks about in Romans 4.8. The blessed man. That is, if you have faith in what Christ accomplished, says in Romans 4.8, that your sin and your iniquity, God would not count against you. And that he would even say the same thing to you that he says to Jacob in verse 15. Look at the very first part of verse 15. He says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. You see, this was God's plan almost 2,000 years before Jesus Christ ever came in the incarnation. It was his plan before the foundations of the world, fixing eternity, that this was his great rescue plan, as Mark said. It was always God's desire to be with us so much so that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, it says. You have to wrestle with that in Philippians 2.7. It says, in some way, he set it aside, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men for you. This was the mission of God in the incarnation to come and be amongst his people. And in some way, this is a big influencer in the mission of Gospel Community Church. We want to see this congregation as it grows in its walk with God to follow his example and live incarnationally here in the downtown area. There are plenty of churches and church buildings that we could have used in the suburbs. But our desire was to be where people work and eat and play and where people are doing life. And, and it's not easy. It's been difficult to find these places, and maybe it makes a little bit of us uncomfortable. I was literally just walking to the church with my four kids and my wife, and as we're crossing the street, there's a guy across on the other side yelling profanities at us and telling us to shut the F up. It's not easy to put ourselves in this circumstance. It's not comfortable. Was it comfortable for Jesus to set aside his deity and enter into humanity? No. But he did it out of love for his people. He wanted to be with us and amongst us. And the thing is, we can look at the downtown of Eugene and all the godlessness in it, and even the Pacific Northwest in general, which is the most unchurched area in all of America. But we can still say with confidence what Jacob says in verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. 
I was telling Rick and the other leaders of GCC the other day after, uh, after we had just got done talking about our struggles and what we're all going through, and I was telling them how excited I was. With my struggles especially, I was praising God and overjoyed that I've experienced so much temptation. It's been a difficult year. Some of you know some of the circumstances you went through, but why would I feel that way? I, I truly believe that something is happening at Gospel Community Church that Satan better wise up to or all of Lane County, even the Pacific Northwest itself will be flipped on its head. God is here and he's doing something incredible. I, I, I've heard people in this congregation speak with clarity on the gospel that I've, I've never heard before. Even back with the old, the, the church that had commissioned Rick to come to Eugene that I was a part of, had, that had been established for over 10 years and had over 1,000 people coming every day. I've heard the gospel communicated so clearly and lived out practically amongst this congregation. And now along with Jacob, we can say the Lord is in this place. And we get to marvel and get on board with Jacob and what he says. Look at verse 17, and we'll close with this. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. In this dream that Jacob had, he got to stand at the gate of heaven and peer into the glory of God and the work of God. That's a little sad considering that there was once a time in history where there was no need for God to provide a vision or a dream for people to look into the dwelling place of God or the glory of God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's, with Adam and Eve, God's space and our space was fully united. God with us. But then driven apart through the sin of Adam and Eve. Throughout the Old Testament, you have time where God is foreshadowing what he would come and do with Jesus Christ. When he would, God's space would break through into our space again in different ways, like the tabernacle and the building of the temple with Solomon. That's what was so sad in the building of the second temple. You see people weeping because at that point when they had rebuilt the temple after exile, God's presence was no longer there. And that's why there was weeping and crying. Where had he gone? Then you have Jesus of whom it was said he dwelt amongst us, or better translated, he tabernacled amongst us. He pitched his tent amongst us. Again, God with us in Christ, the one prophesied by Isaiah long before his coming. In Isaiah 7.14, the one called Emmanuel, God with us. This was the prayer. And the kingdom of God, his dwelling place, Jesus brought in part when he dwelt among us. In Matthew 12, you have this scene that goes down where the Pharisees are challenging Jesus and they're saying, well, you cast out demons because you have a demon yourself or you're using demonic powers. And after Jesus tells them how stupid that is, in verse 28 he says, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We have to ask, did Jesus cast out demons? Well, yes. Jesus comes healing people Casting out demons, forgiving them of their sins, and the kingdom of God, where God is with us again, comes breaking through into our world through Jesus Christ. And then he commissions his followers in Luke 10 to go out and heal people, preach the gospel. And when doing so, he, he says, when they're going around healing people, telling them of the forgiveness of sin, he says, tell them this. Luke 10, 9, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The good news of the kingdom is that we would once again enter back into unbroken fellowship with God. Through faith in Christ, he has put our sin away from us so that each one of us can say with confidence, God is with us. These are, in fact, Jesus' 
parting words at the end of Matthew, Behold, I am with you always. And again, those promises that Jesus gives in the final paragraph of Matthew, they're not promises guaranteed to us because of how well we're holding it together or how well we're doing, but they find their fixed certitude in the nature and character of God of whom we place our faith that he will always be with us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, again, that we get to come together and worship you and listen to your word. I pray that these promises would be sweet reminders to us in our brokenness. As we come tired, exhausted, beaten down, we pray that, God, you would come and be with us in our, in our brokenness and our weakness. Like Jacob, we may have all different kinds of family drama going on right now, God, with Thanksgiving having just ended and ended entering into the Christmas season. We praise you that even in the midst of all this stuff, you're still faithful to your promises to be with your people. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.